Welcome to the Out of the Woods podcast. The top five headlines threat hunters need to be thinking of this week. Hey everyone, and welcome to another edition of the Out of the Woods Threat Hunting Podcast. This is Scott Poley here with Mike Mitchell. Hey everybody, how's it going? And this weekly segment features the top five stories that threat hunters need to be thinking about, as well as our thoughts on the subject and hunting strategies. Before we get into those top five threat hunting headlines, I'm gonna make a quick mention that we're gonna have a webinar led by our senior threat hunter, Lee Arkinall, that's gonna be giving you live interaction with data and walking through hunting for credential access. And it's a workshop that uh, I wouldn't miss. There's always some fun things and anecdotes that I feel like everyone can walk away with. So check that out either on LinkedIn or other ways we share that information. I'm sure you'll see it posted below in notes as well. But now let's dive into the top five threat hunting headlines for the week of January 30th, 2023. All right, Mike, well, I want to start off with one of the ones I thought was kind of an interesting uh, attack because I don't feel like I see these that often. Okay. But it was a, a threatpost.com is what shared it, and it was called Watering Hole Attacks Push Scan Box Keylogger. Why well, I kind of like this because usually when I'm looking at malware, I'm looking at things that live on a machine. And because yep. this whole method was really to scrape or gather information, it's basically a JavaScript-based tooling. Um, and a novel way to deploy it, too, by using watering hole techniques. So for those that aren't familiar with watering hole techniques, the idea is if you compromise a website that is a common place where you know your intended targets may go, uh, we saw this when I worked in the uh, energy sector, where some energy forums or things around uh, electrical engineering and things like that end up becoming watering hole sites to do similar type of tactics. Okay. Um, in this case, they they compromised uh, a couple sites and they ran this JavaScript-based tool. So basically, what it does is your browser runs the malware, um, but there are some interesting things they did. So when they looked at some of these sites, they noticed that they had these plugin IDs that were being fed to the JavaScript, uh, and these IDs were associated with the different capabilities they want to launch um, within the tool. Okay. That was a keylogger capability. They looked at the victim browser plugins. They also fingerprinted the browser, uh, looked at peer connections to see you know whether they may be connected. And then a security check as far as like what maybe security software and things that they're running on the endpoint. And real but, quick, this JavaScript is running purely in the browser. Correct. Um, it can then potentially store some scripts, some JavaScripts in that that container within within that browser and in that session. Correct. Yeah. So I was kind of curious. You know, I've I've investigated some browser-based like attacks, and a lot of times there's cache and things that hold. Yep of sites you go to so that could be a potential place where these the script may just kind of live temporarily just for referencing cache but yeah it's something that i haven't spent a lot of time on is but, that red actor hoping that that tab stays open at least with the the next steps were to potentially get that keylogger type script running so you can capture input right so with that plugin running and loaded in that browser session is that sending other types of session data out, or is that really just in context of the initial website that they landed on that water website? So you know? one of the interesting things when they did their analysis from the, the people that were 
um, this, that were talking about this. They really were saying that they only saw those specific plugin IDs, what they were referencing, the capabilities or extensions of that. They assumed there was probably others too they could deploy in a similar manner. So there could be some more post-exploitation type stuff. But what was interesting about their implementation of this Scanbox JavaScript was their use of the um, STUN protocol. Okay. And the STUN protocol, it basically allows you to traverse NAT. So what's interesting is a lot of times, let's say you're going to run something local on the browser, you know, granted, you can usually send information out. That's not the problem, right? But because they're trying to deploy these plugin IDs back and have this two-way communication, mm -hmm. that NAT traversal becomes difficult. And STUN is a protocol that allows you to kind of bypass that. So basically, it, it you set up kind of a man-in-the-middle server. And in this case, they actually use a Google domain to run the STUN protocol through that kind of keeps that you know, communication open. So you can kind of use your imagination for how can that be leveraged, you know, again, for any other activities they would want to do. Sure. Yeah, so, it seems like a pretty interesting novel way to get data in and out without traditional C2 kind of communication. Right. Um, and that proof point article that we're going to post, I mean, amazing job kind of walking through what the th threat is, a lot of the kind of the indicators compromise, but really talking about what you should be looking for from a behavior perspective. So that is another great example of a, a threat report that could be used to kind of pivot into hunting techniques. The other really interesting thing I saw in the, the initial article and threat post is that we always talk about attribution. And it was funny mm -hmm. the language they put in this post. They said that it is uh, with a moderate confidence that this may be attributable to TA 423 red laden. But it's interesting that they use the wording so moderate and may be associated with, right? That's the biggest problem with attribution from an active perspective that we've seen is that you don't want to associate this with an actor that is, you know, you don't want to be wildly off base if you're making that type of attribution. Yeah. That could lead to a lot of other security issues if you're, you know, if you're thinking it could be this threat actor and this threat actor does these certain things and behaviors in an environment, you could be looking for the wrong thing. Um, and also just from the political sphere, these mm -hmm. articles go out, they read these things, you don't want to attribute something to somebody who isn't involved, right? Um, right, right. So it's, it's interesting that they had to choose that kind of language. In that article. Yeah, it's it's always fun when you try to do attribution. It can be greatly beneficial if you get that right. But when you get it wrong, it can hurt you, you know, not as far as relationship, but like even defense because you might be looking for the wrong things at that point, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah some of the takeaways that I kind of had from this, one, I you know, I thought it was a very stealthy way to use malicious tooling right there, you know, running within the browser. Now, granted, it might give you some limited base access because let's be honest you're probably not going to have the direct admin credentials unless you're running other things to try to elevate uh, as well as you might be limited to how long that browser is, is left open. Now in my case, right. my browser is always open, so <laughs> that might not be an issue for all. Right. Right. But, uh, and then the stun protocol, I was thinking about what would I hunt for in this case, I feel like it's better to focus on the network traffic and mm -hmm. not so much like, hey, how can I catch these types of things being passed over the network? Because the stun protocol, I was looking into the RFC, so it's RFC 5389. And there are, you can use TLS, you can use other ways to kind of encrypt or obfuscate. I think by natively it XORs the payloads um, as well. Okay. So there's kind of some encryption always going on. But 
I don't know. I know that it's used for voice over IP and some other messaging based services. So if you could attribute to where is the stone protocol being leveraged, just based on using the header, you know, there might be a good way to say, hey, where do I see the stone protocol being used by using the header to identify that type of traffic? Sure. And then moving from there um, to, to see well, what domains is it going to? So like in this case, it was a Google-like domain. But there's obviously a weird domain using the STEM protocol. It might be one of those pivots or you know, middlemen communications. So. Yeah, I think we're going to see this trend as more and more. I mean, these these actors and these threats, they understand that the endpoint is where a lot of the, the focus and energy is going in security. So as we see, you know, yeah. we might start to pick up and see more of these kind of uh, ephemeral network-based attacks where things don't live directly on disk or on the host, um, especially when you can put things in these temporary kind of containers within the browser. Um, you really are going to have to start looking at some of the network-based um, attacks and capabilities. Yeah. So that's oh. all I got for that one. What do you got? All right, we'll move on. Uh, this is an article from The Guardian. It is, there's a, I, I don't, I didn't understand this group, I guess, because we're Americans, we don't really have this group over here, but jdsports.com, um, I guess it's big in the UK. Um, they were attacked. So it says that 10 million customer data was potentially accessed by hackers. We've seen these type of attacks across the world. Different organizations, different um, entities, and it's always a big news item, and then it kind of goes away. As insurance gets involved and these organizations try to respond and react, we start to see this, these things happen over time, right? The really interesting part about this is now the article is really talking about what happens with that data. And so they were quick to put out a notification to say there will be an increase and has been an increase in spam. Mm -hmm. um, going out to these unique customers, especially if you have things like the billing addresses, the phone numbers, the order history and details of the, the payment cards, like the last four. So there's a lot of ways that actors and hackers can potentially then fish for the actual juicy information based on these customers. So one of the things that I've seen organizations do in the past is set up, uh, what is it, the ID monitoring or... Um, uh, yeah, or... Uh... It's like credit monitoring, but for yeah. your, you, yourself. Yep, yep, exactly. Um, as a response to a potential hack. So this just gets into the follow-up of what organizations typically do once they have this trove of data, not necessarily specific to the attack that happened to this organization, but you know the, the follow-on and the tail end of, of what could happen um, in an org and to your personal information. So I don't know yeah. if you had any initial thoughts. No, it's, I mean, the typical thing that you usually see right out the front, right? They'll kind of want to disclose it in some way. There's an article that comes out. They don't give you too much technical detail, and they kind of talk about at least some of the high points, like, hey, we don't think passwords or credit cards were accessed. And it just, like, I every time I see something like this, I always think, like, gosh, we've seen so many attacks that somehow access some database somewhere with all this information. And I'm, I'm wondering like why we've not gotten smarter with how we just store information, not necessarily like saying they're doing something wrong, but you know, like for instance, passwords were a huge risk and then password vaults came out. Yep. Right. Like why do, why do we not have something that can say, Hey, we can tokenize customer data in a database. So it's not attributed to really anybody, but there's a way where we're able to, look that up if we really need that data kind of thing like some other area that that can be stored and protected in a different way right. um 
but I, I know like that's like a really far reaching like who for thought that people and great engineers and minds have to come together to come up with something simple. But, you know, it's just always, I always just kind of think like, man, what was this data specifically being used for? And was all of it being used? And then what's the risk with it sitting around? Right. That we never really ask ourselves. And then when stuff like this happens then we have to like figure out, well, gosh, what do we, what do we lose in this? So. Yeah, that's a good point. And then that's, I think that's where services were like, have I been phoned pop up and mm-hmm. you know, are useful for organizations, especially with the email addresses and, yeah, you actually, you bring up a really good point. I remember that was something we used to always do when we saw a big breach that we can look up for, like, have I been pwned in those, like, breach mm-hmm. reporting sites, was looking for anything with our people using company email right. to sign up for things. Yeah, absolutely. Um, because then, you know, our biggest worry is, you know, we don't know what password the users use. And in some cases, if we were concerned, or I don't know if we made it, like, every time, but it definitely, if they had administrator access and things, sometimes we just did a, a force to password reset. I mean, I know that kind of then gets into that, well, they, now they might reuse an even simpler password if that happens a lot. But, you know, that's still a risk you have to think about is, hey, one, we don't like when we use our company's emails to sign up for things, if we yeah. can avoid that. And then two, that that same risk of password reuse possibility. Yeah, that's a really good point as a uh, potentially even an automated or reoccurring thing that you do from a analyst or hunter perspective. And mm-hmm. go look at those other resources as it's tied and related to your domain. So right, that's awesome. Yeah, so um, I'm going to jump into this one that's kind of related to one I'll mention later, but I'll talk to the the surface of of the next one I'm going to cover, and this is from Cyber News, and it's it's titled "Germans Tank Support Met with Russian Cyber Attacks." And I always, you know, if you if you've been a listener to this or you're around me, I always love to talk about real world events tied to cyber. I mean. One of the big risks I remember working in the energy sector was how can cyber go to kinetic effects? Well, I feel like real world lead to cyber, lead to kinetic effects when it comes to a true cyber operation with you know intent for a really bad outcome. And this was basically around the you know Russia-Ukraine conflict war where Germany, you know, and I think the US even, but the Germany was basically saying they were gonna support Ukraine with tanks. And based on them supporting Ukraine, then all of a sudden an uptick in cyber activity as far as what looked like mass scanning of all, you know, German-based IP infrastructure for vulnerabilities and some follow-on based activities that were more like DDoS-like attempts. And then, you know, one of the things that was interesting that they mentioned, which kind of leads to my next, you know, uh, article that I'll talk, is how a lot of the attacks didn't seem to originate from Russia or anything like that. It was all seemed to be from NATO or Ukrainian supporting countries to kind of show the dispersive how cyber attacks really exist on the web. But you also have to think from the perspective that if it is Russian driven, like they imply, one of the things there's kind of a, a rule of engagement, you know, in Russia where you don't attack your own kind. So a lot of Russians don't attack Russians with the same right. things we get affected with. And to do DDoS type attacks, it's got to be distributed. So it makes complete sense why you would have things from all over the globe attacking whatever your intended target was in Germany. Um, So that wasn't mind blowing to me, but uh, it was something they wanted to make sure to point out. So the the article is interesting, right? Uh, It said, I think it said the the data shows the attackers were less skilled and relied on automated tools. Mm-hmm. That correlation is interesting, right? Just because they use automated tools doesn't necessarily mean they're they're, <laughs> they're less skilled. Being effective. Um, <laughs> right, right, right. They're just being smart with their time. The follow-on, you know, they talked about script kitties again. 
if it's effective and it's useful, Metasploit's a great framework. Uh, if you use it, I think sometimes you can be called a script kitty or you know, you're, you're using some off the shelf uh, scripts. Again, maybe they're just being smart with their time and effort, especially if this is just reconnaissance and they don't mm. really care. Yeah. And that they're using, call it AWS, I'm gonna spin up infrastructure in shoot, Germany or you know, some other NATO country and then use that pivot point to then go run these automated scans. So it's interesting how they kind of attribute that to lesser skilled and that might be a way to kind of obfuscate really advanced actors, right? Um, kind of the, yeah. the, you know, distraction, look over there, what we're really doing is, is this thing, right? I really hate the use of the term script kitty nowadays. I think yeah. I've mentioned this before, but you know, script kitty to me isn't really associated with what tools you use. It's more how do you use them and how detectable you are. And from an right. outside in perspective, like you don't care really, right? Like if I'm if I'm scanning you from the internet, I could care less what kind of noise I make. Now, if I'm right. inside your environment and doing really, 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 really noisy things, that um, then yeah. <laughs> I might yeah. say that was more of your novice type of attacker, right? Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, that 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 term needs to get, I think, reevaluated or redefined right. in today's climate because every tool is publicly available that you could use, and right. doesn't matter doesn't matter who uses it; it's how they use it. Yeah, um, and again, it's about the follow-on, right? So mm -hmm. typically, if they're going to scan for all these vulnerabilities. And of course, they're trying to attribute this to Russia. I don't know if it's state-approved activity or it could just be Russian loyalists that are taking in their own hands to do this work based on what they saw in the news. So it's really hard to differentiate that. I think the easiest way to do that is what is the follow-on thing that they're doing? Is it nation-state tradecraft or is it literally just Metasploit or Kali or some other type of script on the internet that you're using without trying to obfuscate where you're coming from? Um, mm -hmm. Or the behaviors they're using, right? Because I think we've talked about in the past, if, if a state-run organization or entity builds something, some sort of exploit zero-day vulnerability, they don't want that to be in the wild, right? So they're going to do everything right. they can to save that as almost IP. So that's really right. where you're going to track and be able to attribute things um, across some of these entities. Yeah. So you know, one of the things when I talk about you real-world events happening and driving cyber so my, my big takeaway here really is it's really important intel when you know either what your country or your company is going to be doing um, because i've seen similar effects too where you know if your company does something that say upsets environmentalists based on what your company does you know hacktivists might be a risk now right so whatever would motivate somebody based on you know activities so being well informed don't, not just in your cyber bubble um, really helps you associate and understand the threats you might be handling or dealing with. Yep, yep, absolutely. So I think I have a theme here for the next article about tracking the follow-on to an initial event. So mm -hmm. back in, I think, 2020 Realtek, or is it 2022? Yeah, in August, excuse me. Um, there was a vulnerability mm -hmm. Realtek Jungle SDK. And so we're starting to see a lot more exploitation of that particular vulnerability and exploit. And there's some stats here, uh, like 97% of the attacks coming in the last four months, right? Probably right. based on some proof of concept that was delivered on GitHub or something, 
this related to some very wide known and well used personal in home wireless devices. So D Link, LG, Belcom, Belkin, Asus, right. right? And so, again, the exploit was released back in August, or the CVU was released back in August, but there's a four month tailwind of the exploitation actually happening. Based on that proof of concept, understanding what that exploit is, and then understanding what you can actually do once you exploit something, right? And so that's a big piece to that pie of, yeah, I can exploit it, but am I just dropped into some container, or can I actually do anything with that exploit? Mm -hmm. There's probably some time of them practicing this on their own devices or in maybe homes or user devices where they had that long-term access. And they were able to test through their methodology. And now they're going out in the wild and hitting, you know, actual users. So we just talk about when things are actually released as an exploit, that's not the end of it, right? There, there's right. still going to be follow on that we should track this over time. Um, and this article is a great kind of indication of, of these third actors and these, these um, people leveraging that exploit. So. Yeah, so I was I was kind of digging into that article and I and I uh, jumped over to Palo Alto. They had a really good write up of some things, and then I actually found that OneKey.com. And I guess OneKey, I've I've never really heard of it. But what it looked like was a a company that does like firmware analysis. So they mm-hmm. write up a lot of research for exploits and things on different firmwares. But from digging into those two places, you know, I found that it really affects a UDP server and how people are finding this was that that chipset basically has a port open for 9034 is the port. And that's how Shodan and those places were able to find this. And basically what's running on that chipset is a stripped down version of Linux. So that's why the attack was pulling down a bash script to run, to then pull down the malware to then execute it. So that was just kind of interesting to kind of understand, you know, what was going on there um, and how simple that was, right? right. Um, but, you know, the the challenge there is, you're talking about a chipset running basically a micro OS that you don't know is there. So this is like the big fear of the supply chain effect. You know, we saw kind of this with Log4j, right? Yep. Where you don't know where that software code was embedded. Well, in places where there's hardware that unless you're pulling things apart to see if that chipset's there, you might not know. Um, sure. And then this, and what sucks is, you know, obviously this is affecting a lot of consumers and not so much um, organizations, I assume, but you know, this is why it's really important if you're going to put something on your network, like know what ports are open, what services are running, because you might not see the hardware, but you'd be able to see that open port and then decide how you want to handle that kind of thing. Yeah, um, absolutely. yeah I mean, that's the, the real fear of the IoT devices as well. I mean, that's why mm-hmm. there's a lot of care and effort going into cybersecurity for that, those type of solutions. Yeah, I mean, that that mini iOS or micro iOS, there's probably zero security protocols or even thought going into the deployment of that. It was probably for a very specific use, and mm-hmm. that's it. They didn't care about literally anything else. It's crazy to me that you can deploy something like that. That port's open. Again, the general public does yeah. probably not have network scanning or even understand that now there's a way into their home network. Um, I could right. imagine a lot of mom and pop shops using some of those solutions for in-store routing. Um, so there's probably a real economic benefit to some of these hackers going after and kind of picking apart maybe specific people that are using these these tools. The home user, maybe not so much. But then we get into what I talked about, I think, last week or the, the previous podcast that 
people take their work home with them, right? So true. very true. <laughs> now, now you can pivot. Let's say you've done everything in in the world to lock down access VPN. You know, you don't have the bring your own devices protocol, but you have a phone and you have internet access on that phone and people can get access to your D-Link router and they get access to your internal network and start to peer into some things. Maybe um, there's there's a, a breadth of opportunity there for these act, actor hackers and actors to get some real data. So it'd be yeah. interesting to understand that, that pivot point. Yeah. So, all right. I think it brings us to the last one, right? Yep. So this one is kind of a pivot I was talking about before with the Russian activity, um, but it's a cyber news thing, but it actually was a report driven off of a security firm that I think is called Lupovis. Lupovis, I don't, yeah, if I spelled that correctly or pronounced it correctly. So apologies if I didn't, but it's Russian hackers use Western networks to attack Ukraine. All right, we kind of talked about this a little bit in the last one, but what I really loved about this was their approach. Um, because they were doing basically an op, I'll call it an op, to base to root out and collect intel on the adversary. And so that what their setup was is they were going to release what seemed to be critical Ukrainian infrastructure information, and they dropped it in strategic places. And they basically used honey files, or you know, um, if if people aren't familiar with those, are basically files that are real files, but they have embedded in them beacons and things to call back. So you can kind of fingerprint what opened them and where it was opened. So it's a great method to, you know, attackers always work behind a wall of infrastructure. Well, if they're not protecting themselves from this type of collection technique, you'll actually see where they reside because they'll call directly from their home, you know, where they mm -hmm. sit. So really powerful. The thing was this whole attack was designed in such a way to root out the normal adversary, what they called third-party adversaries, and the actual bait they were going for, because they had these files they dropped that had critical information like creds, information where things are located, and so forth. They stood up web portals that looked Ukrainian that were vulnerable and would be accessible based on some of these creds, and then they also set up other types of high interaction and SSH services as well that you can leverage some of the web stuff that you either learn from interacting with the web portal or using some of the documents. And mm -hmm. based on their interactions, what they saw, so um, the three types of adversaries I, I mentioned, the opportunistic, they saw that people obviously picked up, didn't really necessarily use the documents, but people were already scanning and trying to run exploits against the environment because that's just the, the nature of the the data and they don't know if that was directly tied to the files or not mm -hmm. but then they saw where there were some adversaries that were doing some of the discovery uh, using some of the information from those files and interact with but they didn't see any kind of that beaconing effect as if they opened the documents so they called it third party because they're saying well maybe someone collected those documents and data handed it off to somebody else to then do sure. these types of attacks I kind of understand where they're going with that, but I also feel like there's probably some smart attackers that when they open up this information, they did it in a secure way so they couldn't, nothing could beacon out. So, you know, they're like, oh, I'm going to sandbox this because I don't want to infect myself with something because this could be sure. bad for me too. And then they do the thing, get the information and use it. So, so I feel like it could be one or either or, but obviously that's something that you'd have to be careful of as an attacker, right? Is looking for these baits. And then the baited adversary, the one they were targeting specifically, was really interesting because they were basically tracking what adversaries opened the documents and then proceeded to attack 
all the way to like where they did the whole manual interaction, uh, high interaction type ports and services where they're trying to drop scripts and do that mm -hmm. type of thing, um, which is cool because now they can see how does that adversary act? What do they do? What do they try? All those kinds. Of, so you kind of learn so much by being able to say, yes, we know that these are the people are the ones that got this and these are where they and tried to follow through with everything. And in their discovery, they realized that all the attacks that they were seeing that they can attribute back to when they open up these documents or whatever were trend or going through, like I mentioned, a lot of that worldly infrastructure that wasn't Russia. Mm. But they were, they, were, they were surprised at how many Fortune 500s and healthcare and types of orgs were compromised because that's where these attacks were riding through. So it seems oh, wow. like, there's, yeah, a lot of infrastructure that has been taking over only for the point of this. And they're saying that what they believe, um, this is you know their, their stance is they're going to use this infrastructure until they think they're almost burned or they need to burn it. And then they might actually go after that business and try to extort them for money or steal stuff from them directly or whatever. But right now they're just laying and waiting and just using their infrastructure to ride the attacks that they're doing elsewhere, uh, mm -hmm. which was an interesting perspective. But they also saw that within minutes of dropping these decoy files in these forums and, and you know targeted places they saw 50 to 60 attackers immediately pick up on them right within minutes so that means people were actively looking for actively trying to find this types of stuff and when they got it they started attacking within minutes which says a lot when you know companies talk about like oh yeah we did have this disclosed on our web page and you know we eventually took it down like a week later but yeah i mean it wasn't good but we don't i mean if if there's an adversary that is after you, there's a good chance, especially if they have the, the manpower and the and the budget, they're going to be using any information you accidentally disclose as soon as they can. For sure. Um, so people should, you know, that's a, a good reality check, right? This could be an issue. And then the types of attacks that they actually watched, and this is what was really cool, is they, you know, we're able to say, you know, we talk about your attackers, like what is your threat? You can kind of validate your threat based on who going after these docs. And then what are their capabilities, the attacks they tried, right? So in this case, they tried SQL injections, remote file inclusions, Docker exploitations. There's, you know, reuse of the leaked credentials that were in the docs, known CVEs, some DDoS activity. And then there were some custom scripts they're able to find that were being deployed and trying to run and stuff like that. So I, I just think, gosh, this would be so beneficial. You know, I, I know being early in security and you know, even mature and security, you know, one of the questions that are commonly asked when you're getting audited, third party audited, or even your management is like, well, who are your threats? Who are you most worried about, right? And sometimes that's kind of hard to answer. I mean, like you can answer it intelligibly by saying, well, because we're in this business and we have this revenue, our attacks are likely this, 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 and our ransomware always hits the list, right? But you can be so much more specific if you were able to do something similar to this, stand up a little bit of infrastructure, and then kind of put these types of things out there. Like how much information can you gather? Like who really cares about me? And if they did care about me, what would they try to do? Mm -hmm. I mean, that information would make your operation and security so much more effective, I think, analyzing that than trying to gather random reports and then associate, well, this attack could happen, so let's defend against it kind of thing, so. Yeah, I think, uh... I mean, this article should scare the, the crap out of some organizations, right? <laughs> um, it's a it's an interesting technique. I know I know we've talked about this in the past in security places I've worked about setting up honeypot infrastructure and, and some yeah. of these kind of uh, these bait canary tokens, things like that on documents. 
it does put a target on your back, right? So yeah. I mean, I hope this. Well, I think the target's kind of already there. In this well, sense, for this, what they did for this organization, though, the security yeah. firm that did this work, with it being attributed to them now, I mean that puts a target on their back. Well, so yeah, sure. I mean, they're publishing yeah. this stuff out there. Yeah, they know yeah. now that. Now yeah, I hope it. they're buttoned up because I mean, <laughs> you know, if if I'm, there had to have been some hard coded beaconing. So if I'm advanced and I grab these documents, if I'm already sandboxing it, I could probably see where it's trying to connect back out to, mm -hmm. maybe mean you know, if they hadn't set their up, set themselves up correctly, like where that data is trying to get back to. But to your point, I think if you do this in a more efficient way for some of these organizations, because you're talking about setting up a whole environment and, and building out this workflow and this process, that could be pricey. But again, to your point, it's amazing information. Yeah. Um, come back. Even if you could spoof some of that infrastructure very quickly, spin up, spin down, you know, collect some of that information and go away very quickly. Um, that's a huge benefit for security operations to understand what you're actually doing and what those groups are attacking, to your point. I mean, that's a that's a yeah. great way to collect actionable data. But yeah, I mean, this is a this is very interesting, but it's scary that these organizations were funneling through legit orgs. Oh, I know. Use that data. Yeah, that was, I mean, that was probably something they weren't anticipating, right? <laughs> yeah. And they're like, wow, this is really weird that it's coming. Like one was like a dam, I forgot yeah. the, the dam operator or something like that. So, like, I mean, I glanced through the article. I hope there's some sort of communication back to those organizations saying like, hey guys, you should peek at this. And like, here are some indications of traffic that we've seen out of your organization. And that would help them kind of button up those holes a little bit. But I, I hope there's you know, it would have been a great thing. I don't think it was disclosed in their write-up, but I mean, obviously that infrastructure is burned, right? Like right. they know that you know they're gonna publish this article and this is going out like it might be beneficial to publish their IPs they use for this infrastructure and be like, did any of your stuff communicate to this? Because <laughs> right, right, it right. shouldn't have, right? And that would be a yeah. great like a, a great use of indicators that we never see happen, right? We're always looking at what are the IOCs that change all the time? Yeah. Because adversaries want to. This would be a great use case of saying, we're going to put IOCs out there that if you see these, you know that you're impacted somewhere, right? Right, right. Um, yeah, I mean, anytime you look at an IOC list, you should probably hit against your own IP address space. That'd be a, oh crap, like maybe maybe we're, we're exploited like you're saying, right? So right. I, I don't know how often do you check your own IP space against? Well, I know that I, we've always had the fear of where you, there's some blacklisting sites when you fall into some stuff where they'll blacklist your IP and it becomes a pain. Right, 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 right. But yeah. Uh, but yeah, the thing though I liked that, you know, the honeypot idea is great, but you know, I feel like there's groups like SANS and things that have put honeypot kind of infrastructure out there and it kind of sees the noise that's on mm -hmm. the internet and kind of sees the trends as far as like, what are some of the exploits that are being tried in mass and as vulnerabilities released, you kind of see that life cycle. But this is really the next level, I think, where when you can spin up two web portals and some sort of, you know, cloud-based infrastructure that's tied to your own but segmented properly, um, you could easily then basically feed what you want to connect there um, and see what kind of activity goes on. And yeah. I think it could be very easily managed, easily controlled, level effort should be very, very minimum, but it could be very effective. Yeah, I mean, it, it, the justification has to be there, right? Mm -hmm. um, any any type of thing like that, but I can imagine if you're already doing, if you have a product or you're an organization, you have 
web-based services or something exposed to the internet. You, I hope you're doing that kind of dev test prod concept internally. Um, mm -hmm. So that might be another place you just spin off one that's you know adjacent to that, which is like the honeypot. So we're going to actually expose this and let it be attacked and hacked and segmented right. off, not against real data, but you already have that stage there. So that'd be interesting to to build into that that security lifecycle type of concept. Well, that's what a great way to filter out noise. Like if you're sharing things with creds and you kind of lock down your honeypot to where creds need to be used or it needs to find some novel exploit, right? then you know that what you're looking at are like more real attacks than just like, hey, we just a really vulnerable system. So of course it looks bad. Yep, yep, so, exactly. Yeah. Eh. Um, but no, I, those are great articles for this week. I know you have some uh, things to shout out, right? Yeah, definitely. For that workshop with the uh, senior threat hunter, Lee Arkinall, credential access, learn all about it, learn to hunt for it. Um, join us. It's, it's a good time and it's, it's live hands-on keyboard skills and data. So uh, take advantage of that. So yep. and then we'll see, uh, see you next week for another week of hunting news. Absolutely. Thanks everyone for joining our out of the woods threat hunting podcast. Looking forward to syncing back next week. And with that, that closes out our top five threat hunting headlines for the week of January 30th, 2023. Happy, Happy hunting. hunting. Thanks for listening to the Out of the Woods podcast. Be sure to subscribe wherever you heard this podcast so you never miss an episode. For more information or to connect with Cyborg Security, check us out online at www.cyborgsecurity.com and follow us on social media. We'll see you next time.